Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Isaiah chapter 31 through 33. When we look at, at all that's going on around us, uh, it can be hard to remember to keep in mind to live out one of the great life-altering truths of the Christian life. Jesus is the King. And he reigns over all. There's a lot of of principles, of truths in the Christian life that should affect us in the here and now. This is one of them. We have a king. His name is Jesus. And he right now reigns over everything. Consider this one scripture. If I could have that first slide, please. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. All things under subjection... In subjection, under his feet. Did we get that up? Good. Thank you, Kurt. This means that after Jesus rose from the grave, then he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. At this very time, once that happened, he is in fact ruling over everything. And that is a glorious thought. There is a ruler above all rulers And he is right now ruling and will never cease to reign. But it can be hard to remember because we can't see it. We often can't see it at least. I think when we open our eyes wide enough we can. But often in our world we can't see it. I I know that you and I, we don't deny this truth that Jesus reigns. It's probably not the first time you've heard that. But it can feel like our king is reigning from such a distance. It can feel this way. He's reigning from such a far distance to our situation that it almost feels like his reign has very little impact in the day-to-day. Even in our lives. Kind of like we're in the lawless wastelands at the edge of his kingdom where sometimes his rule is enforced, but most times it's just kind of ignored. But we know better, right? We know better. We know it. Our Lord is not nilly-willy, and he's certainly not willing to allow his sovereign, good, purposeful, intentional will to be subverted by any simple, rebellious creature. No, his rule is real. It's just this. We're in the part of the story where we haven't reached the conclusion yet. If this was a book and our lives are part of it, we're in the part of the story where we haven't reached the final conclusion yet. We know the conclusion. Every knee bows to him. Every tongue confesses to him. No one will deny in the concluding chapter that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. It's just that we're we're not there yet. We're still going through the story, through the book. Nevertheless, his rule is real, even in all the twists and turns and ups and downs of the story that our great author has written. He's written for both us and the entire world. He's scripted it. He's written it out. He's the great author. And we, the people of God, under the kingship of our Lord Jesus, we must not fail to both see and acknowledge his reign. It's for us to do. The world won't do it. Not yet. They don't see it. They don't care. They don't know it. We do. And so it's for us. To acknowledge it and to live it out. And part of living in the good knowledge of his lordship, his reign, is this. We reign with him. Did you know that? We reign with him. Even now, he is to reign in us. And because of the way he reigns in us, 
We reign with him in the world. Yes, it will have a final fulfillment. Yes, it will be glorious. But even now, this begins. And that's what I think we're seeing in these three chapters, Isaiah chapter 31 through 33. So let's put it like this. Our king reigns. Therefore, empowered by his spirit, let us reign with him. Our king reigns. Therefore, empowered by his spirit, let us reign with him with him. He truly reigns. He reigns as king over the world. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that each of us should reign with him. Isn't that a beautiful, amazing thought? We're his subjects. But what kind of a king? He must be really loving. He must be incredibly generous. What what kind of king invites his subjects to reign with him? Right? Kings are known to be over, to dominate their subjects. And he certainly is over us. But this king invites us to reign with him. Our Lord does that. So today, in three points, these chapters will help us understand our Lord's reign and our opportunity to reign with him. First of all, the true king reigns over every other power. The true king reigns over every other power. Now, we may have mentioned this before as we're going through these chapters. But if you take Isaiah 28 to 33, you can really take it as a section. Um, And they're broken down. This section's broken down into six woes. Woes, woe is me. These are warnings, they're cautions, primarily to the people of Judah, but also to others. And the summary of these woes amounts to this. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, because we got snowed out last week. Missed you, by the way. And that brings us to today, which is Valentine's Day, which is Bring a Date Sunday. And I see that many of you did bring a date on this Bring a Date Sunday. So the summer of these woes that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is woe to those who do not wait on the Lord. Woe to those who do not wait on the Lord. Wait's another way to say trust. Or you can even say longs, those who long for the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, those who wait in the Lord. Woe to those who do not wait or trust in or long for the Lord. Just do a quick check right now, right here at the beginning of this message. Do a quick heart check. Does your heart long for the Lord? Do you long for Him? Do you wait for Him? Does your heart wait for the Lord? Are you waiting on Him for the answer, for deliverance? Do you trust Him first? Do you trust Him most? That's the crux of the matter, right? This is the problem. We cast ourselves, we throw ourselves into all kinds of trouble because we refuse to wait on Him. Dear friends, woe to those who do not wait on the Lord. But what a blessing it is to those who do. The chapters we're in today, 31 to 33, cover two of these six woes. We're going to wrap up the woes with chapter 33. But 31 has one and then 33 has one. The first is a woe to those who trust in Egypt for their chariots and their horses. Chariots and horses are like the tanks and strategic assault vehicles of of today. So let me read a bit of that, uh, about that to you. So turn to Isaiah 31, verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, It's 1 through 9. Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. 
who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts comes down, will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. He shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And you see how foolish it is to trust Egypt and not the Lord. Egyptians are just people. Horses are just flesh. But God is spirit, right? God is God. The Lord is king. He will protect Jerusalem. In fact, he will defeat the Assyrians without any help whatsoever from the armies of Judah, let alone Egypt. And by that way, that is actually what happens. The seemingly undefeatable Assyrian army gets right to the gates of Jerusalem. They're threatening the city, but then right then they have to turn back. They get called back to their own land because of a crisis in their own land. And guess what? They never return to the gates of Jerusalem again. Over 200 years, the Assyrians dominated the ancient Middle East. But never again after this. And the armies of Judah didn't have to lift a hand. Well, what about that last woe? That's the fifth woe. It deals with the Egyptians and trusting the Egyptians, their horses and chariots. What about that last woe? Well, to, that's to the Assyrians themselves. The Assyrians themselves, God had used them for a time to accomplish his sovereign purpose. So he's reigning so that he directs the Assyrian armies, the Assyrian nation. But they have been proud, they have been idolatrous, and their sin is fulfilled and their time has come. So look at this. And that's Isaiah chapter 33. So go over to 33 verses 1 through 4, and I'll read those for you. And you're going to see in the first verse the word ah. Well, ah could also be translated woe. So this is the sixth woe. Isaiah 33, 1 through 4. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. 
And do you see? Do you see here? God is completely dominant over nations, over kingdoms, over groups, over institutions, over any powers in this world, whether they're in an individual or in a, a system or in a group or in a nation. God is completely dominant, whether it be Egypt or the United States, whether it is Assyria or China. I know that we've exalted God many times for his reign over all things. We've done it from this pulpit repeatedly. We've done it in many small groups. We've done it in many conversations among us. We've exalted him for his sovereign reign in our quiet prayer and in our songs together. Good. That's all right and good. So then, since we do it, since we've done that so often, why then do we still tremble in fear when we look up and see the host of the enemy all around us? Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you. Fear him. Fear him. Now, it's interesting, if you, study, if you study it, you notice through the woes, you notice that there's a steady, if subtle, movement through these six woes. It moved from dependence on foolish leaders to the revelation of the true leader. So, for instance, in chapters 28 through 29, we're introduced to the foolish, drunken leaders of Judah. They're a mess, and they're probably even wearing silly leaf crowns on their heads. It's like... Exactly what you would expect of a drunk at a party. He puts stuff on his head, right? And walks around, tries to be funny, and he's ridiculous. That's, that's what these guys are doing. That's what these leaders are doing. They're not the sort of leaders you want when life is on the line. They're not the sort of leaders you want when your city is besieged. But notice this verse in the last woe that we just read from Isaiah chapter 33, verse 2. Oh Lord... Be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Isaiah is crying out to our Lord here. But it almost seems like the people of Judah are finally starting to understand that they need to wait on the Lord. Remember in all the previous chapters how they're, they're not waiting alone. They're not trusting. They're going down to Egypt. They're, they're making a, they're, at one point, they're making a, a, an alliance with Assyria against other regional powers. And all of this has developed to their chagrin. Now they finally seem to start to understand that what they need to do is wait on the Lord. That the power in their own hand, their own ability to save, it's, it's worthless. It's not worth it. They shouldn't put the effort there. It will result in nothing except further destruction. And that's really kind of like us. Isn't it? Isn't it kind of like us? So let me ask, when we fail in some task or relationship or, or whatever it may be, what is wisdom in that moment? Should we simply do exactly the same thing? Should we have the same attitude? Or should we say, I need to look at that again. Should we humble ourselves? Should we recognize, maybe I need to change this up. I have to adjust something. I need to repent before the Lord. 
We do that, don't we? We put our trust in ourselves. We put our trust in our idols. We put our trust in our own hand. And then when it fails, finally when it fails, and you know what's all going on the whole time? God and his kindness and his love and his patience and his discipline is teaching us and teaching us and teaching us and teaching us and teaching us. That's not the way. Wait on me. Long for me. Trust in me. What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Let this be our adjustment today. Let it be our adjustment. Let, let this woe to Egypt, this woe to Assyria, let it be our adjustment today. Truly and fully recognize that the true king reigns over every other power and then wait on him. Our king reigns, therefore, empowered by his spirit, let us reign with him. And that brings us to the second description of what our true king is like and how he reigns and how we're to engage that. And that's this, the true king is truly beautiful. Whoops. Did I go too far ahead? What did I do here? Here we go. There we go. The true king is truly beautiful. He's truly beautiful. How should one describe the king of kings? How does one describe the Lord? There are many descriptors we can use, but to sum it up, He is the most beautiful. He's the most beautiful. These chapters reveal just how beautiful the true king truly is. And uh, just so you know, I'm going to be reading a good portion of scripture. We're not going to read every single verse in these chapters, but we're going to read some good portions here. But I encourage you to engage, look at God's word, follow along with me, and, and try to engage it as best you can. Uh, obviously, we won't get to everything in all these verses because it's so rich, but Lord willing, we'll get this point that the true king is truly beautiful. So Isaiah chapter 32, let's start with verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 8. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. His pla- he plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on the noble and on noble things he stands. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 33 again, and go to verses 5 and 6. Let's keep filling out how beautiful this true king is, how truly beautiful the true king is. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, 
and knowledge, the fear of the Lord, is Zion's treasure. And finally, a a bit of a longer passage, Isaiah chapter 33. Skip down to verse 13, and we'll read through verse 22. Keep following along, Isaiah chapter 33, verses 13 to 22. Hear you who are far off what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the grain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ear from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighted the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Now first notice that this king that is to come, the king that we keep talking about, the true king, the king that's going to come, the king that rules, the king that's going to rule, he is absolutely no human king. We definitely will see some of this fulfilled in Hezekiah. So there are, there are human foreshadowings of the king to come. Hezekiah is going to appear soon in Isaiah to us. He was a good king as far as human kings go, and that only goes so far. But all that is ascribed here simply cannot be a human No, it's the Lord, and its ultimate fulfillment is the Lord Jesus. He is the king that reigns like us. He is the king that is revealed here. Now, you may have noticed many qualities of beauty in the passage. And you may have noticed that the Lord is called out as beautiful in the passage. But you may have also heard many fearful words, frightening words. Words. Think about that for a moment. See, think of this. See, beauty and fear go together. Sometimes we're too trite about what beauty is, right? Certainly the world is very shallow in regard to what beauty is. But beauty and fear go together. Let me ask you, have you ever been intimidated by someone's beauty? Think about it. Tell the truth. Have you ever been intimidated by someone's beauty? Have you ever noticed how young women may giggle, may, I'm not saying always, may giggle in the presence of a man they consider handsome? It's never happened to me. But I hear that it happens sometimes. Have you ever noticed how young men often become shy in the presence of a woman they consider to be very beautiful? 
or they otherwise lose their minds, right? <laughs> Years ago, I watched uh, Chariots of Fire, and I love one of the lines in there. It stuck with me because one of the runners meets a woman, and, and the other, another runner liked this woman, and, and some of his friends said, uh, so-and-so appears to be smitten with this woman. And, and the, the jealous one said, what do you mean smitten? He's decapitated. <laughs> that kind of thing happens. Now, there have been many theories of beauty and attraction over the years. One of them even places beauty in symmetry. In other words, the more symmetrical a person's features are, especially the face, they're more attractive, the more attractive they appear to be. Be that as it may, we know the truth. Beauty is far more than skin deep. Beauty is found in the state of one's spirit. Beauty is purity. Beauty is truth. Beauty is justice. It is wisdom. It is holiness. That's why there's a connection between beauty and fear. True beauty is sacred and it comes from God because God is beautiful and our true King is beautiful. And when we approach the Lord, we approach the most sacred, the most beautiful the greatest beauty that there is to be in all the universe. Now that's a beauty to behold. And it's a beauty to ascribe to and to seek after. No wonder, no wonder the apostle exhorts women to have to adorn themselves with an inward beauty. Chapter 33, verse 6 said, The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Zion, meaning the people of Judah at that time, is the mountains around uh, Jerusalem, the mountain of Jerusalem. But we could take that certainly to mean God's people. The treasure, the fear of the Lord of God's people, of us, is the treasure of us is the fear of the Lord. But this fear of the Lord is not a terror. It's not a dread, not to his people. It's not like the poor abused person who flinches when the fist is raised. That's not what we have with God. That's not it. The scriptures teach that the fear of the Lord is clean. The scriptures teach that the Lord is friends with those who fear him. No, the fear of the Lord means this. And listen carefully. The fear of the Lord means that we have a right understanding of ourselves in relation to God. In relation to the Lord. A right understanding of ourselves in relation to the Lord. This is so critical in life. You know why? You know why it's so critical in life? If you have a wrong understanding of yourself in relation to God, you're going to have all the wrong expectations. You're going to be, you're going to be uh, uh, demanding that God answer your questions about why there's suffering in the world. You're going to be demanding that God fix the suffering in your life. You're going to demand of God. And, and the reality is, how dare you demand of God? We're in no position to demand of God. You see, the fear of the Lord recognizes that. It says, it says the, the right position you have before God is, is not someone who's in a position to demand of God. 
And so if you, if you don't see yourself, probably you're in a fear of the Lord, and, and you exalt yourself above the Lord, if you're not in right relation to God, if you don't see yourself in right relationship to Him, if you don't fear Him, you're going to have all the wrong expectations. And essentially, you're going to look to Him to have Him fulfill your stuff. Whatever you deem that stuff to be. You're going to think that He should see your beauty instead of you beholding His beauty. And bowing before his beauty. The fear of the Lord is to conduct our lives in knowledge of the Lord, which includes knowing that he has expectations of us. He requires from us. We don't require from him. And therefore we conduct our lives accordingly. You see, the true king is truly beautiful. And our king reigns. He reigns. This king reigns. He's, 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 he's dominant over the world. He's beautiful in the splendor of his holiness and allows us to come before him and even to partake of it. Therefore, empowered by his spirit, let us reign with him. And that brings us to the third description of what we have in him. The reign to reign with the true king. Um, can I get that slide with the three points? I'm a little trouble. There we go. Thank you, Kurt. The reign to reign with the true king. Take a look at these verses. Go to Isaiah chapter 32, verses 9 to 14. Sorry about those noises. It was louder than I anticipated. My girls tease me for drinking in front of you all. I, I do it for your sakes so when I'm dry mouth. But they, they, um, they challenge me to chug in front of you all. And I just want you to I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Isaiah chapter 32, verse, verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dense forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Now this is interesting. We know the king is coming. We know the king is going to reign. And when he does, justice and peace and security and prosperity and order and noble princes are all promised to God's people, to us. But here we have a shift back to the present for a moment. A shift back to the present. We've been given a glorious picture of what's to come and we need that. We need that hope. We need to know and God's given it to us. But we're not to ignore the present. Because God has given the present to you and I. This very moment, right here, right now, is a gift from God 
And he has expectations of us of how to engage this moment in a way that brings him glory. And that's true for every single moment of our lives. And here's the thing, it's not fitting. It's not fitting for us to be complacent, just waiting for the future. He wants us to engage now. He wants us to engage now. The picture we receive in these verses are of women at ease. Women, especially in the city of Jerusalem, they're at ease. They're complacent. Women and children would have been among the most, the most vulnerable population. And so the fact that these ladies are at ease, going about their daily business without a care, in the face of being potentially overrun within a very short time, is rather concerning. The times are dangerous, but they're going about their business as if it's business as usual. This is not a picture of a city that sees the error of its ways and is repenting to the Lord for their idolatry, for their sin. They're not repenting to the true king so that he would be merciful to them. This is more of a, "Eh, it'll all work out. You know, oh, they always tell us there's danger around the corner, but there's really no problem. And, you know, it really doesn't matter that much anyway. This way or that way, it's all fine. There's no repentance in that kind of thinking. There's no turning. There's no returning to the Lord. There's no trashing of idols in that kind of of complacent uh, uh, thinking that just doesn't even bother to look at your own soul and take it to task. There's, There's nothing there. There's nothing for God to do except to bring about His discipline. And Isaiah prophesies to them. He prophesies for them to wake up. He prophesies urgently. Open your eyes to see what's going on around you. Can't you see the press of the nations? Don't you see the loss of the north? Don't you see how close Assyria comes? You see, this can very easily happen to us too. Complacent. Complacency makes us poor subjects, very poor subjects for the true king. Complacency means we're not doing his work. Let's face it, dear friends, the Lord is working for the nations right now in our times, in our lifetimes, in this very day. I think it's obvious that we, the church of our Lord, the American church, has been dulled into a terrible state by prosperity and ease for far too long. That all seems to be changing right in front of us. And you know what? If it causes us, if it causes you and me, if it causes Crossway Church to more faithfully fear the Lord, then it will be for our good. But I pray and I exhort you and all of us that wherever you see complacency in your life, in your thinking, in your attitude, in your will toward what our Lord has called us to, then let us repent before him because he has a work for us to do and it is a glorious work so let us fill our mouths with the testimony of his grace in this world and let us not fail to tell of his wonders in this world and there's very good news here even for these complacent women and even for us if we are complacent Our King, our Lord, our Jesus does not leave us to the work alone. In fact, He does not leave us alone to do most of the work. He doesn't leave us to do the most work. He does the most work. But we get to work with Him. He does the heavy lifting. 
We get to do the light lifting. It's kind of like the guys, like, you know, you see something heavy to lift and you're like, I'll take the light end. God says, that's okay. You take the light end. Just, just take an end. I'll get the heavy end. Remember where we left off with that last scripture. The vineyards are withering. The palace is abandoned. The city is deserted. Wild animals have overrun the watchtowers. It's a ghost town. But now look at this. Isaiah chapter 32, verses 15 to 20. Isaiah 32, verses 15 to 20. Until, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Verse 19, And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. You see, when our Lord sends the Holy Spirit on His people on the day of Pentecost, It's like rain. It's it's metaphorically like rain. Why? Because it's poured out. And where's it poured out from? On high. Kind of like the rain. And so, when the, the Lord Jesus, who ascends to his throne, waiting for the final call, when he ascends to his throne after his resurrection, he sends the Comforter. He sends the Holy Spirit. When he sends the Holy Spirit, it's poured out from on high. And what happens? All of a sudden, bounty Plenty, fruitful fields. The wilderness begins to blossom and produce. The city becomes populated. It keeps growing until it's a forest and God's people dwell in justice and order and peace and security. And these are wonderful promises, but they're primarily spiritual and they're primarily for our benefit. You see, when we bowed before Jesus, you and I went from desolate to fruitful. And we should be bearing fruit. The Holy Spirit was poured out on us. When we came to Christ, the Spirit was poured on us, was given to us, and we've been given the help, the helper, so that we could be His subjects, we could be His faithful subjects, bearing good fruit, empowered by the Spirit. Look at what we can can bear as we allow Him to reign in us. Look what we can bear. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see what we can bear by the Spirit in this world? You see how we can reign with Him in this world? 
We can do this when we live by the Spirit. And that doesn't mean to, living by the Spirit doesn't mean to live by feelings. What do I feel like the Spirit wants me to do? Let me see, let me see. That, that's not living by the Spirit. No, it means to know who God is and what He expects of us. That's the fear of the Lord. And then to live that way because the Spirit enables us to do so. We can overcome sin. We can put it to death. We can lay it aside. We can bear love, joy, peace, etc. We can, we will, we must, we will to the glory of God because the Spirit has been given to us and when we do this in our lives, we reign with Him. When you bear peace, when you bear kindness, when you bear gentleness, when you bear love, you reign with Christ. We rule the way Christ rules. Think of it. When you're faithful to those the Lord has given you responsibility for, you have just reigned like Christ. And you've just reigned with Christ. You've brought his rule to bear into the earth through your faithfulness that the Spirit bore in you. When you see that person in need, that may be a flat tire on the side of the road, and you stop and you help them, you have borne the fruit of the Spirit called kindness, and you've brought the reign of Christ into the world through your action. Empowered by the Spirit, you bore the fruit of kindness. And in doing so, you ruled like Jesus ruled. You reigned with Him on the earth. When you and your spouse are bitterly fighting, and then you lay aside your bitterness... And you seek to patiently love. You have just then, empowered by the Spirit, borne the fruit of love. Ruling like Christ rules. And you've reigned with Him on the earth. So it is in all the good fruit that we bear by the Holy Spirit. And when we bear good fruit, where does it come from? It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Dear Christian, never forget that. Always give Him glory. Always recognize it. Always recognize the powerful, active working of the Holy Spirit of God in you. So that we can reign like Christ. Reign with Christ on the earth. Oh, Spirit of God, reign on us. I'd like to ask Doug to come. And we're going to sing a song in closing in just a moment. Our King reigns, my dear brothers and sisters. He reigns, therefore, empowered by His Spirit. Let us reign with Him. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? We are subjects of the true King. He reigns. He dominates every other power. And He's beautiful. He's the definition of it. And He sends to us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we're not left alone to to an abandoned heart, an abandoned soul, a shell of a person making no difference in this world, just enslaved to it like the rest of the world. But instead, He fills us with His Spirit so that we can bear fruit and reign with Him on this earth. Please stand with us. And uh, just before we sing, I'm going to read you one last scripture. I won't put it up, so you'll have to listen. And here it is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for 
If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.